We had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. What we are very proud of now is that we penetrate the cabinets. Seriously, I'm, I'm making a serious point. I don't know what half of them are protesting against. We've still got Fauci walking around free. The man should be in irons in the darkest pit. As much as he touts that he cares about it, he doesn't. This is our revolution. It's not theirs. Don't let them take it from you. Don't let them convince you that it's their revolution when in fact it's not. It's ours. And we will have it. It is Friday, the 26th day of August, the year of our Lord, 2022. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside Bruce Adams and the fan favorite, somewhere between iconic and psychotic, Marty Foster. Marty, how are you? I'm fine and dandy, like a hard candy Christmas, in the words of Dolly Parton. Fantastic. I have something else I'm going to throw at you here in just a minute, since you mentioned hard candy, but I'll get to that in a second. Bruce, how are you? Well, despite her age, I wouldn't mind if it was Dolly Parton. <laughs> I mean, considering the age, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, uh, I just yeah, keep my glasses off. You don't look too closely. Oh, but yeah, but I mean, for her age, still. She, yeah, I, I, I saw it, a video of, on of her on on Graham Norton. He's a Irish TV host, chat show type of guy, and she was on his show. And lots of people impersonate Dolly of of all genders. Um, it doesn't matter. And she said herself that if she wasn't a girl, she'd have been a drag queen. And I think she'd have made a jolly good one. Yeah. And I think in that same interview, she's actually committed a few of them that actually did a better job looking like Dolly Parton than Dolly Parton herself. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned hard candy. And we talked yesterday yeah. about uh, something that was well, it was rather odd. It was candy, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't hard. It was gummy. We were talking about uh, gummy bears being made out of repurposed uh, wind turbine blades. And you, you seemed... You seem to have an opinion about that. And seeing as how you have a considered and informed opinion that we're all welcome to, I thought are, I would give you, you a are. chance to, to weigh in on that. Well, I listened to to that podcast today, so as this will go out tomorrow, and it was frustrating for me because uh, you were all talking sense, but you were missing something. Me, basically, you were missing me, and I should have been there to be involved in that conversation. Yeah. Uh, you can say a carbon atom is a carbon atom uh, and and so on. But the point is that everything operates at a specific frequency. Um, we think that the, the desk that our laptop or PC and screen is sat on is solid. It's not. It's a bunch of molecules that are oscillating at a particular frequency that represents something solid. So you could place something on it. If you could make your hand resonate at the same frequency, you could pass your hand through it. But of course, none of us can. That that's a that's something from fantasy. But when you break down something that is basically fiberglass into its constituent atoms and molecules and put it together into supposedly a foodstuff, that foodstuff isn't oscillating at a frequency that is necessarily identical to the stuff that is created otherwise from stuff that is already considered food. That's just my opinion. It stems from long conversations with my grandfather who would talk at me until I understood what he where he was coming from. But scientists don't treat things that way. They don't look at things at that harmonic level. They look at things in the, what's the word I'm looking for? In a much more simple concept of that's an object, this is another object, and this is how these two objects interact, rather than looking at everything as a whole bunch of frequencies. Yeah, and I, I was uh, trying to voice that more or less, but um, not having the eloquence of that. Coming from the perspective of uh, my limited knowledge on this uh, topic, my perspective on it was the same as, uh, I'll give you an example. The hydrogen cars, the, the ones that convert hydrogen into uh, water as the exhaust, right? Um, yeah. They derive their hydrogen from natural gas. The problem was the water that came out of the car was not drinkable. Like you can't just take your glass to the back of it and take a swig of it. There's, there's remnants of the natural gas 
that that process still left in the water that it does get filtered out when it reaches uh, ground level but uh it's not something you could just straight up drink and that that's kind of the same logic here you're going to have remnants or or as you said the the free, the the frequencies are going to be off even in uh even in like sci- uh science fiction like fantasy world when they start replicating stuff they don't use inorganic material to replicate it into organic material it's always like if you watch star trek and you look at their replicators the replicators are based on uh, organic material that's put in they reorganize the protein structure and then it's consumed so it's still organic material it's still you know so it would be like um taking a whey protein and and having an extract of whey protein it's still uh milk it's still dairy but yep. it's just it's an extract of it and that's kind of the same concept that the the replicators are doing so c- coming in with this you're using uh inorganic material to make organic material consumable it's like what i said yesterday the synthet- synthetic stuff is not you just can't digest it your body doesn't know what to do with it, it yeah because it is out of harmony with organic material because it's inorganic the nuances the difference between let's say a few nanohertz tiny 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 changes in frequency of how a substance oscillates or what that substance oscillates at means that it's either going to be good for us or very bad for us it's just a crazy idea there are so many things that science can do doesn't mean it should you know if if it wanted to if they wanted to They could uh, use stem cells to create you another head. You'd be like Zaphod Beeplebrox with his extra head growing neck. If they wanted to, they could do that. I I was listening to yeah. I was I was actually listening to um, what's that uh, that Harari character, uh, Klaus Schwab's advisor guy. Uh, He was actually talking about that, saying that they can now get to the point where they can start growing human embryos, as in they'll grow something that can replace you know it'll just grow like the vital organs that are typed to you based on your genetic uh, coding and then though that way your body will never reject those organs but that that's not what they've got planned for it that's, no, that's no, no, not why not. they're doing that because there's plenty of living breathing walking around naturally donors for those rich enough who wants or needs their organs so the idea of this embryo bank is is for deep space travel that's what i think anyway i've written that into several of my um uh live action role play sci-fi systems that i've run the concept being that if you're going to travel great distances the people who start the journey are certainly not the same people who are going to finish the journey therefore you need this this bank of embryos that will travel through space and time and eventually, you know, grow into full humans. They would have to be educated during the journey. The chance to to form characters and personalities would be very limited. That everyone would be very much the same. But the end result is that living, breathing sort of humans wind up at the end of the journey. And let's be honest, the people that are the ones that would be supposedly behind all this, they don't have any interest in helping the average person, do they? No, they certainly don't. No, but they've got such strong egos that somehow, somewhere, someone is working on how to implant their psyche, their um, mental state onto one of these blank canvas brains. And Although we are talking a lot of hypotheticals here and stuff that is really science fiction still and not science fact, although it's moving that way, in Star Trek where you've got the transporter, I've been racking my brains, which are not as educated as they need to be to solve this problem, and I don't know why I even bother myself with it, but how would you do it? How would you transport a person from one location, teleport them to another. And the only answer I've come up so far is that they would have to be completely disintegrated, then reintegrated. And the problem is you've got these scanners now, the the spectral um, scanners that will tell you exactly what each part of you is made of, what frequency it's oscillating at, what the water content is, what the fat content is, what the protein and muscle 
so on and so forth. That can be done. The bit that they can't transport are your thoughts and ideas. So every time someone was transported in, in Star Trek, they should have arrived on the planet's surface a complete gibbering wreck because they, their, their brain couldn't be replicated to that to that same person or they would be a completely different person and have uh, a completely different personality but like i said we're talking bollocks aren't we men because yeah, this, this is, is science this fiction is getting, this is getting way fiction. out there yeah it's getting way yeah. out there well you started well, it. It, it the thing is though is science fiction becomes science fact eventually so your your point yeah we do need to figure that out because this is going to be something we have to deal with in the future True. and they call that transporter death by the way aha uh-huh. We already have a term for it, or was that something from the the lore of it all? That's, uh, Star that's, Trek term that's for it. something from Star Trek. Oh, yeah, okay. it's all right. it's basically it. the person dies to be transported and is revived at the other point. Oh, I see. Because during that time you're discombobulated, you're not alive. Makes sense. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, as you say, Marty. I'm sorry to steal your thunder and your one-liners there. I do apologize. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the ranch, British Airways is going to cut 10,000 winter flights out of Heathrow Airport. 10,000. They're saying it's due to staff shortages. Gee, I wonder what could have caused that. Staff shortages, huh? Yeah. Well, it is due to staff shortages. There, there is still the demand for those flights. They have got staff shortages because a lot of people refused to be snake oiled. So they lost a lot of staff. They also lost a lot of pilots who were snake oiled uh, and pilots died um, as a result for, for, from vaccine injury. injury. Um, and again, that's something that you demonstrated just a few moments in prep, a moments ago in prep, when we were looking at those ONS figures. I can't remember exactly what year it was, but it was the 18 to 39 uh, age bracket. Yes, and it was. We can, t- we can get into that if you like. Well, I, I think it's just... It's just supporting of 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 what I'm trying to say here is that yes, of course you've got staff shortages. You've got rid of all your free thinking, switched on staff. All you're left with are the ovine idiots that went along with the whole thing. What are you laughing that at? Point, you're laughing at me. I, I'm, I'm la- yeah, I'm <laughs> laughing at you because you you'd refer to it as ovine uh, idiots. I was harking back to your poem that you read uh, last week. Uh, but oh yeah. Yeah, the uh, the statistic you're talking about, um, and to be honest with you, I mean, we looked at the uh, the pilot uh, deaths in the U.S. They're saying about the same thing. They're saying that they have staff shortages of uh, around twelve thousand pilots in the U.S. You don't just casually mention that you've got a shortage of twelve thousand pilots. That doesn't happen. Yeah, of course you're going to have shortages here and there per airline in the industry. I get it. I get it. But not all of a sudden. Yeah, uh, we've got a shortage of twelve thousand pilots. It like that doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. Uh, but the figures you were mentioning there, the figures came out this morning from the Office of National Statistics. One in every 73 COVID-19 vaccinated people were dead by May 22nd in England. And before you jump to conclusions, which I don't think you can now because you mentioned it, before you jump to conclusions, that comes from the 18 to 39 range, age range, uh, which is like, that's, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to digest that. To be honest, I mean, we're talking about January of 2021, which was rollout or just right around that time. It was rollout at that point to uh, the I think it was the over 80s and, you know, getting down into the 70s. And they were just dropping each age group back. But that was rollout. So between rollout and May of this year, one in every set. Let me repeat that again. One in every 73 COVID-19 vaccinated people were dead in England, in the 18 to 39 age range by May of this year. That's horrendous. That is absolutely horrendous. That, that's a lot of young people dying. I'm still not 100% convinced, but that's only because I find it so staggering, that out of a, a group of 7 million people, so the 18 to 39 bracket, is, was about seven million people, I think it said, wasn't it, Bruce? You worked it out, didn't you? You you worked out roughly what size the sample was. Uh, I figured sixty-seven. It was roughly sixty-seven million in the UK, and taking that that figure, the one in uh, what was it, one in seventy-three? Is that what it was? Yeah. Um, yeah. Taking that, it was uh, just just slightly under one million uh, people that would have died. Yes. So one million people in that age bracket is a high number. And these are non-COVID deaths. So they didn't die 
or rather their death certificate didn't say you died from COVID-19. So, But it, they were. It, it, they were jabbed. They they were jabbed. And you've got to remember that some of those people were going to die in yeah. car accidents. Yeah, could They're going to sure. die from other causes. There, there will be a portion of that number, but it's still really very high, yeah. a very high number. And that's straight out of the ONS. So we're supposed to believe it. Um, we've got the um, the debate coming up on the 19th of September in the House of Parliament on vaccine injuries. And I'm going to watch it with even more interest now to see if these figures are presented during that debate. But one of the, uh, we're getting slightly off track, although it's, it's all related. The reason they're saying that they're going to cancel 10,000 flights this winter is due to staff shortages. And we've got to remember that virtually everything stopped for two years. The training, the, the training pipeline stopped. People who are successful airline pilots, they don't tend to work into their 70s. They tend to retire quite young, 55, probably 60 at the latest. So with everything that's happened, an awful lot of people have gone, life's too short. We've just had a bit of a, a harsh lesson. Life's too short. I'll take my retirement and go and do something for me now. So you've had a lot of retirees and you've had a big two-year hiatus in the training pipeline. So the replacements are simply not there. You can't learn to be a pilot via homeschooling. You know, it, it no, doesn't work that way. No, and a lot of these guys... Although there I mean, are some very good flight simulators out there. But I, I'm assuming it's the same in the UK for your uh, airlines as well, like uh, British Airways and, and these uh, these airlines. A lot of the pilots in the United States, not all of them, obviously, but a goodly percentage of them are former uh, airmen in the military. And they come out and they go right into flying commercial planes. Some, don't forget, your military air units are way, way bigger. In fact, your Marine Corps is bigger than our entire armed forces. That's not any better. In fact, you know, we are still the best, he said, smiling. But it's it's much, much bigger. Heathrow is an incredibly busy airport. It's I think it's the world's busiest. Uh, well, Dubai maybe the world's biggest yeah, uh, and busiest now Chicago. prior to that uh, no I'm okay J jfk jfk new york yeah but but i've been through know, Heathrow. i i went through i went through frankfurt imagine this flight i went through frankfurt which deals close to a million passengers a day at least before all this uh, i went through frankfurt obviously to uh, fly out Heathrow and chicago within 24 hours i will never as long as i live do that again no it's um it's quite stressful and extremely tiring but it's a big airport uh, it handles an awful lot of, of through traffic. And if they haven't got the people, then they can't safely provide those flights. And that's what they're saying. But also, we've got to remember the cabal doesn't want us traveling. It doesn't want us moving around. Um, it wants us sedentary and stuck in one place. So it's win-win it's for them. And it's just a bit unfortunate for the traveling public. So I, I want to kind of make a, uh, a weird pivot here. It goes down the line to where we're going to stay on topic. So what I want to do is I want to transition to something that you brought up to me on the phone the other day. I mean, maybe we can just kind of take this as an intermission, if you will, if, if you want to go that way. But it goes to exactly that point that you're talking about. They don't want people to move. They want you to kind of just stay put and stay within the confines of your little digital prison that they want to create for you. And part of that is buying an electric car or forcing you to take transport that's all electric. And to do that, you need lithium batteries. At least that's what they tell you. You need lithium batteries. What is one of the big sources of lithium? That would be lithium mining. And where's a lot of that lithium mining done? Uh, that's going to be in Africa. And who has a majority of their Belt and Road Initiative uptakes in or on the continent of Africa. That would be China, uh, because that's yeah. where we're going to buy all these batteries from. I, I want to discuss this uh, because you wanted to, to kind of talk about that. And I'm very interested to talk about that uh, because I've been reading up on the, the Chinese getting into Africa for about 10 years now. And Bruce and I had a working theory 
a couple of nights ago when we were talking about that. Uh, and it's it's quite interesting where this kind of, if you just start looking at things as how they've gone over the last 10 to 12 years, it's interesting how this kind of all just, I'm not going to say it's a conspiracy, but I'm, all I'm saying is, is it just, if you look at it on the surface, it just makes sense. Uh, but when we complete this, I want to transition right into the uh, coming energy crisis. And then I've got some uh, some things on that. But let's start with Africa. So if you recall about, I want to say 2012, 2011, 2012, you had uh, President Barack Obama who was in office at the time. And I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the Benghazi incident. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and prior to that, you had uh, the incident in Egypt where you had the Arab Spring. You're familiar with that, obviously, uh, because yes, I believe I you were in you were in region at some point during that time, I believe, or maybe that was before, or maybe you were in Saudi before that. I'm not sure. No, no, it was. I was there. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make is is that if you go back, even uh, I, and you could actually go back further than this. You could go back to the Bush era and his friend Tony Blair. What did those two guys do? They went into Iraq, didn't they? After 9/11. So they put yep. us in. They put us into that. And what was the end goal of that? What was the result of that? It was getting rid of Saddam Hussein, right? Yeah, it was. It was to effect regime change, right? Now I said this way back to you during all of that. That British servicemen don't like to be lied to, and they were lied to. If they'd have just said, actually, we're going to go and uh, effect a regime change. That would have been a much better reason for going to war than fake weapons of mass destruction that simply didn't exist. No one found any. So people would have been better prepared and more mentally in the right place to to um, to fight that war rather than being scared witless that any second now some cloud of ner nerve agent was going to kill them all or a nuclear strike or a dirty bomb or something along those lines. Where are you going with this, by the way? Well, I was what going, it, to, it, I was going to continue. <laughs> I was going to continue. Yeah, my bad. Yeah, go on. No, you're, you're fine. You're fine. But my point is, is that Saddam had to go, right? He had to go. Now, again, yeah. I'm, I'm not getting into conspiracy theories here, but Saddam had to go. So he was knocked out of the box. He was, he was gotten out of the way. Then you had it transition to Africa a few years later, didn't you? At least the northern... Um, northern part of it didn't go sub-Saharan so much, but northern part of Africa. You had the Arab Spring start. We got rid of Hosni Mubarak, who was an ally of the US and the UK and the West. We got rid of him. Hell, we were the ones that put him in there in the first place. Same thing with, with Saddam. We were, the, we were the ones that put him in there, but they outlived their usefulness. Saddam wanted to sell his oil to the world in euros. He didn't want to use dollars. That was his first mistake, at least according to the Western establishment, the Western power brokers, whoever they are. But Mubarak, he had to go. So that one got knocked out of the box. What is Egypt key to having if you're China? The Suez Canal. You've got to have the Suez Canal. If you're going to if you're going to start a Belt and Road Initiative for if you're China and you're playing a long game on building a Belt and Road Initiative over the course of two, three decades, you need the Suez Canal. You can't do it any other way. So Mubarak had to go. Then you had the incident in Libya. You had Muammar Gaddafi. What did Gaddafi want to do? I'm not saying he was a good guy, but what I'm saying is, is that Again, there was another supposed uh, ally of the West. We got along with him. We were able to do deals with him, but he wanted to sell his oil in gold. Again, big mistake. You got the petrodollar, right? You got to keep that going. So you had to have OPEC. They had to be on board with everything. Otherwise, none of that could have happened. So in order for China to get itself into Africa, you had to have these other guys, these other dictators out of the way. Saddam would not have gone along with any great reset, not in my opinion. I don't believe. Same thing with Muammar Gaddafi. I don't think he would have gone along with it either. I don't know about Mubarak, but it seems to me that these guys were not going along with the program. You notice that each one of these guys got knocked out before all this started, and they tried, yeah. they tried during that same time to take out, and I think, hell, I think they're still trying to take out Bashar al-Assad in Syria. They're still trying to take him out. And the idea was, is that He's a key ally of Russia. That's that's Russia's uh, Mediterranean uh, warm water port. So I, I guess where I'm going with this is all of these people had to be taken out, as in these are key places that had to be taken off the chessboard, if you will, to allow China to get into Africa, which leads into your point. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is some conspiracy theory. I'm just saying you couldn't have had China infiltrate Africa or do deals in Africa with these other leaders not getting a big chunk of that operation. It just wouldn't have happened. No, and the, the North African countries like Libya, Egypt, 
even Algeria uh, and Tunisia are more developed and they are more industrialized than the sub-Saharan countries, which is actually where those resources are, where the lithium mines are. And I think had they have started without those obstacles being removed, Gaddafi, Mubarak, Assad is quite some way away and as such not really able to influence what's happening in in Africa. But I think there would have been a North African coalition standing against the financial uh, and industrial invasion by China. I think that they would have stood up as a coalition. Egypt has got quite a large military. It's a lot of old kit and most of it is is ex-Russian as it happens. But it's still quite a large military force. And I don't think they would have put up with effectively what is happening, which is China is colonizing Africa. It's becoming a colony. It is. And when they go in there, when they go into these countries, this is essentially what they do. They'll send in a delegation of CCP businessmen and they'll meet with the country's leadership. Any one of those sub-Saharan countries, it doesn't matter which one, apart from possibly South Africa, and they will cut a deal with whatever uh, dictatorship they have in there. They'll say, listen, you could do with some new bridges here. You could do with some new roads here because you've got dirt roads. You've got villages that are 200 miles inland that no one can get to. It might take them a week or two to get supplies in there. So we'll get you a new road. We'll build you water treatment facilities. We'll build you electrical infrastructure, these types of things. And what they'll do, that'll garner favor with the locals, as in that will allow the locals to put more support behind the corrupt governments and the corrupt dictatorships. They'll stay in power. They'll also do some food deals, maybe. You know, they'll throw some of that in there as, uh, as well. And as you said many times, what happens in those countries? The food, it gets unloaded off the ships and it goes straight into the warlord's hands. And they are the ones that get the power and the authority out of that. China, it's a little different. It's a little different. When they build this infrastructure in these African countries, they don't use a lot of the local labor. China will send in their own labor force. Hold on. China will send in their own labor force. And what they will do is they'll build all their own stuff. They'll employ some people in in some of these... um, uh, resource extraction area, some of the locals, they'll, they'll employ them doing that because that's what the deal will be. We're going to build you all this stuff. You're going to be able to stay in power. You're going to have the support of your population. But you see, we want these over here. We want A, B, and C, whatever that is, whether that's oil, whether that's uh, lithium, whether that's copper, nickel, tin, rubber, whatever it is. They want the raw materials. They want the resources. And this is what the, the Belt and Road Initiative is all about. Uh, by the way, do, we forgot to mention Israel. China also had that deal with Israel to build one of the world's largest ports that only China is allowed to access in Israel with Chinese labor. That's key to this Belt and Road as well. But anyhow, I'm getting off topic. So what China will do when they have these deals already made, they'll then send in PLA contractors and they'll build military facilities in these countries, a lot of them, and they'll build walls around them. This is what kind of led to your point uh, that you were mentioning to me on the phone, and I'll, I'll hand it over to you here in just a second. But they'll build military facilities and they'll build an airstrip on a lot of these places. And what they'll do, they'll just send in their own labor. They'll send in uh, their own food, uh, their own uh, vehicles, everything that they need. And they won't interact with the local population. They won't spend money in the local economies to stimulate those economies. They just won't do it. And so what they'll do is they'll focus on whatever that they have on their facilities down there, and that's it. They don't talk to the locals. They don't mingle with them or or visit any of their businesses or, or anything like that. And it's different when... Say, for example, like we visit these countries or, or if we have business deals in these countries or something like that, we actually put money into the economy. We'll support the local businesses that they have. Uh, we'll bring more tourism to those areas in a lot of cases. I'm not saying Africa is the only exception here. Of course, it you know, works in European countries and uh, in Southeast Asian countries and countries in the, uh, the Asia Pacific and stuff like that. We spend all kinds of money in these places, but the Chinese don't do that. They go in, they send in their own labor force. The people that they do employ live in horrible subhuman conditions, a lot of them. And the locals are just not very happy about all that stuff, are they? Well, you've, you've kind of pretty much said it all that I was going to say, because the video evidence I've seen recently, particularly in, I believe it's Namibia, where you have got a, a, a huge amount of lithium mining going on, 
is that the Chinese managers, the overseers that are supervising local workers, so African workers who are living on site and they've got them living in, you know, six men to a half an ISO container. ISO, you know, the, the ISO containers that we use yeah. for transport. So that yeah. they've been converted into living quarters. These are steel boxes in blazing Namibian heat with people living in them. And the Chinese don't interact because their language is so different from European languages. And the majority of Africa that isn't speaking, you know, the African language like Swahili in in the south, and I can't remember the the, the names of the other other African languages, but the majority of them, due to colonialism, speak either English or French in in the main in in Africa. And so, no, the Chinese can't go and socialize. They can't go and interact, and that's not what they're there for anyway. They're, they're there to make money and to do the bidding of the, the CCP and to elevate the status of their families back in China. And so they will stay inside the compound and, and not go out and spend money. Anything they want or need will be shipped in. You can bet that happens. And, uh, and a huge amount of human trafficking of sex workers is happening inside those compounds. But what's started to happen recently is the Africans have started to complain to their overlords, to their Chinese overlords, and the Chinese have, have uh, responded and felt a bit scared. And now they are openly carrying sidearms. And the African guys, who we all consider Africa to still you know, because we haven't visited it that much uh, as individuals, we consider it still to be quite undeveloped and, and unsophisticated, but it's not. They've got their own laws, they've got their own rights, and those rights are being abused by the Chinese in terms of, of what's happening within these mines and the way people are being treated. But as soon as they started to wear firearms, that's when the Africans really got annoyed. They've been used to people carrying guns around them all the time. There's been wars in Africa ever since there's been Africa, and, and they're used to facing people with guns, and it, they're not really that scared of them. But what's amazing is that the Chinese feel that they can wear them, even though they're civilians in somebody else's country, feel that they can walk about armed when it's actually illegal. Private gun ownership in a lot of places is totally illegal. It's only the states, Canada, Australia used to be that has still got private gun ownership. You know, there, there are a few other places globally, obviously, but in certain parts of Africa, it's been outlawed for quite some time. So it's the fact that they feel confident enough that they can get away with it in situations where they're being videoed that they can use their sidearm uh, to influence a conversation about working conditions and that to me is is just um well it, it's an invasion it's dictatorial it's tyrannical and it's not what we expect in this modern day and age yeah being as a as an american uh you know um we we uh overthrew um what we considered a tyrannical rule uh using firearms so you know uh, i i kind of have issue with government saying you can't carry a firearm first of all um and second of all um just the fact that they're flagrantly violating laws let's say your nation does outlaw them okay you know that's that's you guys's choice and your elected officials you know yeah i understand yeah but to have people coming in like that that are just flagrantly violating laws we have that problem here on the southern border of people just violating our laws if that's your first action in our country the, the appropriate action in return is you to be thrown out of the country and never allowed back in. That's kind of my opinion, though. So in this case, I um, I would personally see it as the same way. Uh, the Chinese, if you're coming in here violating our laws right off the bat, you can get the hell out. But it's the thing is, it's nobody's business but the independent governments of these countries as to whether they do do deals with the Chinese. It's it's their business. It shouldn't be um, a global problem. It shouldn't be something that has to be addressed by the UN. 
But we know that the ultimate end of all this is a complete monopoly by China of rare earth metals, of all the means to build printed circuit boards, silicon chips, batteries for cars, all of those things. The rest of us are being totally disadvantaged and cut out of of the whole process. Something does have to happen. And you were right to to explain the whole Arab Spring and how all of those strong leaders in North Africa were got rid of and chaos ensued so that there couldn't be an African, a North African coalition that would go against what was happening sub-Sahara. With the business deals that those here in the West would get kickbacks from for selling out the industry. Yeah. That's uh, this. This is the other thing. If this were, if this were America many years ago, I could see some uh, president or administration or even a, a business type to go down there and be like, "You don't want the Chinese over here." You know what? Here's the deal. We'll offer you a better. We'll, we'll give you a better offer for those materials, and we will help you build up your location or whatever, and go in and use like uh, just bargain better than they did. You know, and employ their people uh, going, but they're yeah. all on the same side, Bruce. So that, exactly, you know, I, yeah. I knew that was where you were going with it. They're all on the same side. The Democrats are so in bed with the CCP that there will be some kind of horrible, deformed bastard child created out of it. Um, maybe that's what Klaus Schwab is. I don't know. I'm, I'm- Johnny made a face when you were talking about that, and I know exactly what he was going to reference. The Republicans are just as guilty as the Democrats in this. Um, and one of the our suspicions were confirmed recently with some of the um, things that happened in primaries uh, for the yeah. Republicans and some of the discrepancies in uh, voter count that we had seen during the uh, uh, previous election cycle back in 2020 uh, was happening in the primary. And it just goes, honestly, though, to, to be completely fair, if you remove uh, the moral compass, if you just remove that and look at what happened, just based on um, if the Democrats are going in and doing this and cheating and the Republicans are seeing it and they're like, they, they just got away with cheating. Why shouldn't we? Like, it, it, clearly the laws have been like that. That's a, that I'm, I'm kind of already of that perspective with what they did with Trump and the Mar-a-Lago raid. I'm kind of like the next Republican president. You better have some damn balls about you and you go after every one of the Democrats that's done that's that's turncoat on America and, and you know, like did deals with China or whatever. Both sides. You you should go in and just start doing raids. Just start raiding them and, and go in and say you've got documents that you shouldn't. You've done dealings with China. You shouldn't. And just turn everything upside down. And if you're going to go banana republic, you go all bore. You go full bore and start uprooting all this stuff. And just start getting rid of the corruption, and what, uh, with, they're not going to do know, it though. Getting back to getting back to to Africa, and I, I accept that it, you know the the fact that Republicans who are basically wearing the badge saying I'm a Republican, but are actually just self serving that they're, they're not the leaders that the people deserve. They are the people. Uh, sorry, they're the leaders that the people just wind up with. And, I would say and, it's not the leader that people want, but it's the the leader that people deserve. I, I would change that just a little bit. Yeah, I take the point, and I I I, I get the the difference. So where was I going with that? To back to back to Africa. How many years? You know, we're talking forty years at least of charity organisations to get clean and fresh water, better infrastructure, more schools all of these things into Africa. Billions of civilian dollars have gone to Africa, not through any government, but through charities. And where's all that gone? What's happened to that? Why do they need to have a totalitarian, crony capitalist government like the CCP come and help them when they've had at least 40 years of, of charity sent to Africa? People are Keen as mustard to to get there and help and build something and do something. Even members of my own family have been and spent time in you know places like Zambia and helped with the schooling and all those kind of things. So where's it all gone? What's happened to it? 
I just so happen to have an answer for you. I don't know if it's an answer you're going to like or if it's an answer you're going to accept, but I have an answer. And that is, it's because of climate change. That's why. Because of this agenda that we pushed on everybody that's been nothing but a lie for the same amount of time, mind you, because that's about when it started, was about 30 to 40 years ago. The doctoring up of the uh, uh, the sensor network that they put to monitor the temperatures, calling it global warming. But see, it's an agenda now to push on people to make you alter your way of life. That's what we're being told, right? Because this is where I want to transition into the energy crisis. And it goes to reason. Because when you think of the future of civilization itself, I mean, I, I, I think of climate change, don't you? To reinforce that, right? To re- <laughs> I can tell the look on his face. He's not believing a word of it. But if you're not going to take my word for it, well, then let's just take Charlie's word for it, shall we? Change and biodiversity loss as two of the world's most dire and pressing threats simply cannot be solved without China. At COP26 in Glasgow and through China's presidency of COP15, the world has made some progress towards a net zero, biodiversity positive and sustainable future. But governments cannot achieve these goals alone. Industry must play a central role in our efforts to accelerate the green transition. Mobilizing finance will be crucial. The Sustainable Markets Initiative brings together the world's leading businesses to collaborate and invest in the future. China is home to the world's biggest banks and insurers. Chinese companies are also world leaders in green technologies, from electric vehicles to renewable energy. So your collective action through uh, the Sustainable Markets Initiative China Council will play a vital role in the global transition to a greener economy. I wish the SMI China Council's upcoming events, including the SMI China Council local action in Lushan, Jiangxi, uh, the 2022 Carbon Peak and Carbon Neutrality International Cooperation Conference in Jinan, Shandong, the 2022 uh, Carbon Neutrality Economic Development Forum in Beijing, and uh, the Forum on the Hongqiao Forum of China International Import Expo in Shanghai, every possible success with fruitful deliberations. The future of humanity, the entire natural world on which we utterly rely for all economic activity and civilization itself depend on an ever more urgent solution. Now, I'm not an expert or anything, but does it sound to you just a little bit? I mean, just a little bit like he's he's kissing some Chinese sounds ass like, there. Just it, so- sounds like, it sounds like Xi Jinping has stuck his hand right up his ass and he's <laughs> working him from the inside. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? That's what it sounds like. That's my future king. What the hell? For a start. He called them green technologies, electric cars. World leaders. World leaders in green technologies. And industry plays a part, and they have got these world-leading industries, but they're all run and chosen by the CCP. Nothing happens without the CCP's approval. No one gets to be head of a company without the CCP's approval. So the fact that they are burning more coal kicking out more emissions, filthying up the air, which is is true. Whether or not it's got any long-term effects remains to be seen because we have been lied to about so many other elements of, of what's causing climate change, air quotes. Prince Charles has always been a tree-hugging freak. He thinks he's got you know the the divine right of kings to solve all problems with a wave of his hand. He built a, a whole town which was supposed to be super eco green and, and and a nice place to live. For the people who live there in this new town that he's built or had built on, on his land, my bloody land, the people are under so many restrictions. I, I wouldn't you could you could give me a house there. I wouldn't bloody live in it. I'd rent it out to my worst enemy, probably. That's what I'd do. I'd give him a really good rate. There you go. There's a nice place to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want much for it. And just enjoy the fact that they were living under those kind of restrictions in a 
falsely manufactured shithole, basically. So we have he a green energy. As, sorry, just, <laughs> You're fine. He triggers me nearly as much as fucking Tony Blair. Excuse my French. Honestly, I when I first when I first heard that, and you hadn't heard that, I was holding that just for that reason. <laughs> you hadn't heard that. I mean. You hear him. He's talking about this this green. You know how we we must transition. I, I can't. What's the accent that he has? Like I don't I don't hear the average person like yourself or, or somebody else. I don't hear you guys talking like that. You don't have that kind of an accent. He's got it's, something. Else. Um, it's it's called an RP, uh, RP. accent. Okay. Yeah, okay. Clipped RP. It's, Clipped RP. It's a, it. um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but when I hear him, he's talking about basically if you break it down to the brass tacks, what he was talking about when he says civilization itself is uh, hangs in the balance. He's basically saying as the way he was talking China up through the entire thing, as you said, it was Xi's hand all the way up there. He's basically saying that China, like the only hope for civilization is is the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, that, that's kind of no, what, I'm- what he actually means is that the only hope for civilization is for China to get exactly what it wants. Otherwise, it will not stop all of these polluting activities. They're the worst polluters. Current- They're the worst polluters. Say again? They are the worst yeah, they polluters. Are the wor- they are the worst polluters. The cities are filthy, actually. They are. You know, the, the, the places you see on TV and at ba- in Beijing and all the rest of it are, propaganda. are clean Total propaganda. and, and Total propaganda. propaganda. The propaganda part of Charles Windsor's speech there was how many Chinese city names he could fit in to that one piece. And it was it it's it's part of getting everyone used to the idea that China is going to be more and more important and have more and more say in our lives. It's 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 the the thin end of the wedge, the tip of the iceberg, whatever you want to call it. But it's a way of desensitizing people to our our naturally defensive xenophobia. Yeah, he's wrong. But what he's saying may be for what he thinks are the right reasons. And this, this we're going to have to take a slight segue here because there, there was a meeting today. It was quite a heated meeting of the correct use of the English Language Society. Oh, this ought to be namely, good. Namely, me and Ned. There was lots of shouting. There was lots of, can I just finish a point? Will you let me finish the sentence, please? All that going on. And it's your fault, Bruce. It's your fault that this happened. And you you knew this was coming. And can you guess the word that caused the argument? Uh, Let's hear it. It's benign. The benign reason. Okay. The benign reason, Uh, yeah. The benign reason. And the opposite of benign is either malicious or malignant. So if you're talking about non-sentient things like a tumor, it's malignant. If it's a sentient thinking being, then the opposite is malicious. Now, I don't think Charles Windsor there is actually being malicious. I think that what he was offering is his, for want of a better word, benign reasoning. But we need to stop using that word because it gives them an out. What it actually is, is plausible deniability. So when you're looking, you know, when you're looking for the benign answer, why is this happening? Why is this policy being introduced? What are they trying to achieve? Or on the face of it, prima facie, what are they trying to say to convince us to behave or change our behavior in line with a policy? And in most cases, if not all, it's a plausibly deniable reason. So, for instance, where you were talking about the Canadian situation with people coming off maternity leave who haven't been vaccinated because they wanted to wait until they'd had their families couldn't return to their jobs unless they were vaccinated. The plausible deniability reasoning for that is, oh, well, we want to protect everyone, so we want them all vaccinated. The actual malicious real reason for that policy is, A, they want to punish those people who weren't vaccinated, and B, they want to make sure everyone's complying with the vaccine for whatever reason. And I think we've stopped pretending that we don't believe they're actually trying to kill us. So that's what they want to do. They want to stick that poison into as many people's arms as possible. Now, with Charles there, to get back to the point, he's always been very vocal about green issues way before any of this came to light. You know, we're talking 50 years ago, even. He was 
banging on about green issues and pollution and the natural world. And so he is a prime candidate for this kind of manipulation, for this kind of mass hypnosis, something we're going to talk about in the very near future. And he's a victim. I firmly believe that he's actually a victim. He's probably got more information than most of us and knows more of the bigger picture of what's really happening than most of us. But he is self-justifying what he's doing and how he's being used because he thinks it's going to help with green issues. Well, to that point of green issues, this leads into the energy crisis, doesn't it? Now we're being told, oh, you're going to have a problem with your uh, your electricity and your heating. And of course, that goes to other things. If you don't have electricity, you don't have running water. If you don't have electricity, then you don't have natural gas. Obviously, that gives you heating, but it does some other things as well. Some people, it has, I don't know, your uh, your cooking, you know, your cooking stove, whatever. That could be natural gas in some places. That's also regulated by electricity. And if you don't have regulators regulating natural gas flows in your neighborhood, then you're going to have an overflow of natural gas. And guess what you're going to have? You're going to have natural gas explosions, a lot of them. And that's not going to be good. But we're being told we've got to conserve. You had this, this green politician over here come out the other day and say, you know, a washcloth is a wonderful invention. He actually said that. He's been catching all kinds of flack on social media for it, too. You've got people in the U.S., the, in the Biden administration, they're coming out saying you've got to uh, get your house insulated and, and we've got all these government programs that you can take advantage of. But if you can't pay for it, that's OK, because you can just finance it and you'll get the money back in like seven or eight years, hopefully. You've got the Belgian prime minister coming out today saying the next five to ten winters will be difficult. The next five to ten. Finland today up in Finland, when that prime minister up there is not drinking herself half to death at a party, they're saying that they're going to have power problems this winter. The UK, your government is warning of civil unrest of people being unable to pay their energy bills. And there's a campaign that's put out by Boris Johnson. Uh, He said it uh, yesterday. Hold on just a second. I have the audio of it. Is it sensible to pay for British taxpayers to support freedom in Ukraine. I say it is absolutely vital and we've got to continue to do it. Absolutely vital and you've got to continue to do it. Then you have campaigns across the UK saying this. It's the Ukrainian flag and it says you'll be cold in the winter because they need it more. And the government is warning about civil unrest. I think that's going to happen in every major European country. You've got Macron, who's out yesterday saying the age of abundance is over. That's gone. We're done with that. You've got energy crisis happening in the UK. Power prices are 700 euros per megawatt hour on the mainland now. That's not affordable for many people. That is not affordable. Everyone's being squeezed out. You've got the German government saying those that are protesting against having your electricity and your water turned off uh, and your heating turned off, clearly what that is, those are domestic extremists and those are enemies of the state. That's what they're saying. In my humble opinion, it's it's, it's straight out of the Marxist playbook. It is. That's exactly what it is. I did get into a bit of an argument with a Ukrainian on Fastbook because they were thanking Boris Johnson for visiting and all their support and all the money and all the arms that Britain has sent. And I kicked it off with just a simple, you're not welcome. They misunderstood and thought that I meant that they weren't welcome in the UK, which actually, as far as I'm concerned, they're not, because they're not genuine refugees. And there are closer places that can accept them. But what I meant was, they're not welcome to my tax money. This is a choice. This is something that should have been part of a referendum. When we get our new forms of government and our new systems, we need more referendum to happen because it's absolutely boiling my piss that my money is going to that war. That war should have been over by now. That war should have been won, but it's being played out and extended because both leaders are part of the same plan. They are obeying the narrative. They are making it happen. They are creating a false problem that is having this knock-on effect, which is to destroy the rest of Europe, to put the rest of the European people's lives into turmoil and stop, you know, 
the, is it um it's something like belli pecunis which there's an old latin phrase which means basically money is the sinew of war if you cut the money off from russia and the ukraine the war stops and that's what they need to do or the war carries on and they fight it to a conclusion no i th- i think it's going to be something else and this is this is my worst case scenario. I mentioned it yesterday. Everything that they're moving into theater, it's all being moved out of Germany by rail and it's all going into Poland. So my guess is, is that it's going to jump across into Poland. It's going to spill over into Germany and then the rest of Europe. That's my guess. I hope I'm wrong. I, I seriously hope I'm wrong. But that's my guess at the moment, because that would be the best way for them to to, to bring all this down. If you throw a, a kinetic war, even if it's just on a, on a limited scale, as in it's it, it remains minimal in scope, it's just a enough to cause havoc and just enough to keep things off balance and keep everything in a state of flux where they can reorganize and, and do what they need to do. So it doesn't have to be a full scale war like we saw in the Second World War or the First World War in Europe or anything like that. It doesn't have to be that. It's just enough because if you've got all these other crises stacked on top of it, then that's just going to put in just that little bit of entropy, that little bit more entropy, that little bit of chaos just to kind of keep everybody off balance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've you've got a point there. That indeed could could be the plan. But with Europe, we're well overdue a large scale conflict inside Europe. From around about the 13th century, there has been a large scale conflict on mainland Europe every 40 to 60 years. In some cases, it was 20 years between them. So World War One and World War Two around about 20 years, 21 years, in fact. So we're about uh, 80 years from the end of World War II. So we've not had this this large-scale conflict within Europe. People would say it's because of the nuclear deterrent and NATO and all of those kind of, and the UN and levels of diplomacy. But sinusoidally, we are due a hell of a... A, a, a big conflict, and and you may be right, and it's it's a scary thought. It is. It certainly is. Uh, trust me, I know. I'm actually here. You know, I'm in the middle of uh, of the continent over here, so nobody's m- more concerned than me. Uh, but anyway, uh, final thoughts. Do, do you have any final thoughts, or have you said all you wanted to say this evening? Well, I don't know. You you might have to get your bleep button ready again. I got it. Go ahead. Um, right. This was something I wrote nine years ago. You had clued me up to the way in which the global wealth also goes in a cycle. So I'll, I'll just I'll just read it. So I wrote this on August the 24th in 2013. According to economists, about every 40 years, global debt exceeds the point that brings financiers woes and fears, because that's the point where what is owed is more than what is stored. It's as if some knight adventurer has stole the dragon's hoard. We're at that stage again, it seems, as markets fail to thrive and growth is at a negative and salaries start to dive. Now the wealthy few will try to gather in the gold and the banks will stop their lending, leaving most folk skint and cold. You see, if money is lent or spent, it has to go somewhere. There is only so much of it and the wealthy hate to share. If you have a business you want off the ground, You'll have to wait and bear the drought till all the cash be found. You won't get a bloody farthing till oligarchs feel safe, till Lloyd's List names are once again in their rightful place. Well, it's jolly sad, but I cannot weep for the greedy, idle rich. I hope they don't recoup a f***ing cent because life's a f***ing bitch. You know, this is going to so, turn into a, a, a like a poem war back and forth between you. Well, and I, I don't know. Uh, it just pops up. That's something I wrote nine years ago, and it makes me feel like a prophet. But that's largely down to conversations I've had with you over the years, because as a, as a simple military man, I never tended to think about those sides of things. I just wanted to know where my next meal and, and beer was coming from. Flattery will get you nowhere. No. I know. <laughs> It'll get you nowhere. No, I, I understand, my friend. It's... um. It's been quite an interesting friendship the two of us have had over the years because we bounce things back and forth off of each other and we learn things that we otherwise wouldn't explore. Uh, And it is quite interesting. Uh, It's been quite a learning experience and it continues to be one all the time. It makes me more humble because, you know, 
having to be nice to an American is is a, is difficult. I know it's terrible. For, it's it's terrible for for a British man. But you know, you make it easy. You you both you both. Do. I know. You're, you're very I've, easy to get on with. Just something about getting down on one knee and something about you know English or something. I I don't know. I just I, I got that bum <laughs> knee. I just I can't do it. I'm, I just can't do it. <laughs> Bruce, you got any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think uh, we, we kind of uh, showed you why government's bad today in, in, in a bit. So uh, <laughs> uh, again, you know, government's bad. Now, obviously, I like law and order, but, you know, you understand. For those of you who would like to send us some feedback, please do so anytime by sending us an email at dynamicpodcast at protonmail.com. Also, do you like the podcast you're listening to? We do love having you as a listener, and we would ask you to pass this along to five friends. Do you know someone you're trying to wake up and get them to think on their own? We would appreciate it very much if you would send them our direction. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for being here this evening. Thank you to all of the listeners. Everyone have a great weekend, and we will see you on Monday. Thank you.